Welcome, David Hoffman. It's a pleasure to have you here today as part of the Brandywine Global series of podcasts around the curve. I'm Katie Klingensmith with Brandywine Global, and I'm delighted to host this conversation focused on the Federal Reserve. For those of you who don't know David Hoffman, he's the head of global fixed in income at Brandywine Global, and as such, is a portfolio manager for a variety of different strategies. David, just get us started and give us a sense of how extraordinary the monetary policy, monetary conditions are right now in the U.S. and the the overall historic context. Sure. I mean, the monetary conditions right now have stabilized, but they've been in an extremely aggressive posture for the last two years. And, you know, the inflation issue that's being addressed right now is partly a cause of that aggressive monetary policy. But significantly, in addition to that, the fiscal policy that the U.S. pursued. If we look back at QE in the past, and QE and QT seem to be the current focus and then where rates are going, but QE in the past never caused inflation. A lot of people feared that it would cause inflation, but really QE puts money into banks' balance sheets as reserves which if they're not lent, doesn't get into the money supply and doesn't get into inflation pressures. But this time, the fiscal policy was giving money directly to people and businesses, went directly into their bank accounts to be spent. And one of the biggest questions today, actually, that resides still is that M2 is still much higher than it was. And where, why is that money there? Are people ready to spend it? Or they, is it there because they want that reserve of safety? So that's a question the Fed doesn't have the answer to, neither do I. And, um, but it's a, it's a combination of the fiscal policy and the second fiscal policy thrust, where inflation was only 1.5%. There was no fear then. And when Powell was talking about transitory inflation, now, he might have been right without the war, but he was wrong in his timing. It was transitory into the spring, not into the fall. There was no inflation the year before, so it was very difficult for it to fall up. So the Fed embarrassed themselves and sort of had a panic attack, um, which may have been appropriate because the war came on top of the supply chain issues. But you had um, labor shortages because of people changing their behavior around wanting jobs, retiring early, possibly because of QE driving up stock prices allowing them to retire and cash out their 401k or, or what they might have. Other people just deciding with uh, COVID that they didn't want to work as much. They needed to be at home. They saw a different way of life. So COVID over the last two years has caused all kinds of, of changes. And it's a combination of those changes that the Fed is dealing with. And the Fed is not equipped specifically to deal with all of them. They can't make more people go, want to go back to work. So the Fed is struggling. They, they stayed easy too long. So David, you mentioned the term quantitative easing. I think we're all pretty used to talking about quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. But can we just go back to the basics and can you underscore how you understand these, what these terms actually mean and just give us your basic sense of if quantitative easing worked in the first place? QE is the Federal Reserve buying securities in the marketplace. And uh, in retiring those securities, those, that money goes on to the, the balance sheet of the Fed, but also on the balance sheet of, of, of banks in the system. Um, 
if you think about it, buying securities is giving an investor money. The investor has sold a security, they have money now, they need to take that money in and buy something else. So in, in our view, QE pushes up asset prices. It doesn't necessarily push up inflation. As I said, unless those reserves get used as new loans, there's no necessarily increase in demand. So if you turn it around and say, QT, what does it mean? Janet Yellen told us a few years ago that QT was like watching paint dry. Well, they watched paint dry for a few weeks or actually a few months, and then they realized that it was doing damage to the walls or something, and they stopped and they had to start actually cutting rates. Because I, the way I think about it is if, if you start selling securities into the marketplace, people have to buy them. In order to buy them, they have to sell something else. And if they sell something else, that's an effect on the financial markets. People have been saying, including um, recent doves shifting their tone, that we bought a lot more securities this time so we can sell a lot more. But I think if you think about it, all those, that money got integrated into the financial system and in the economic system. Um, so stopping adding it is restrictive, which we just did in early May. We stopped easing, excuse me, early March. We had been easing until the first week in March. Then a few weeks later, they did their first tightening. But if you buy bonds, take money out of the system, there's less liquidity. The Fed does not usually seem to understand liquidity's function in the financial markets. You take liquidity out, it may be like uh, your swimming pool used to have eight feet of water in it. It was great to take a dive. But when it only has four feet, a swan dive could be a really dangerous event. David, I wanted to actually ask about just that. It doesn't seem like there are a lot of examples of the U.S. or other countries exiting from this kind of balance sheet support. Do we have any guides around how this could work and if it might be disruptive to remove all of that support? It depends on how aggressively the Fed pursues it. They've been talking about being quite aggressive. You know, Chairman Powell in the past has said they really don't understand how quantitative easing works. Um, but they've done it. In Japan, in the last 20 years, only went through one six-month period where they reduced the balance sheet and they went right back to you know, stable to growing balance sheet. So I think you might think about the balance sheet as something that you can grow. It gets integrated into the economy. Maybe they shouldn't have done it, but they did. And because they did, it's part of our economic fabric. And reducing more than a moderate amount might be quite disruptive. So if they took all of what they put in, the last two years out, I would expect significant harm in the financial markets. Complicated challenge. Um, well, switching gears a bit, let's try to unpack what has changed the Fed's attitude about inflation. At the end of last year, we still heard the word transitory quite a bit, um, even with inflation starting to pick up. And going into 2022, now in 2022, we're hearing a, a Fed with a very different tone. What changed? Um, I think one thing that um, they started off on the wrong foot. Um, when Sharon Powell said transitory, maybe his PhDs of the Fed thought it was transitory. But if you looked at some basic uh, numbers, you would have seen that the year before, the next six months, in other words, the same six months a year before, only had 1% annualized inflation. So to think that inflation on a year-over-year basis would come down in the next six months 
was just not reading the tea leaves correctly. Um, without the war, um, if he'd said it would be transitory six months from now, inflation will start coming down, he might have been right. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has aggravated uh, lots of issues on many fronts, but on the price front, which we're talking about, it's caused uh, aggravated shortages of food and energy. But the other, um, I think the Fed misjudged also the impact of the shortages caused by supply, um, shortages of things like micro uh, chips that are used in cars and lots of durable goods, I mentioned that earlier, but also China's continued lockdowns as they fight COVID in their own particular way, which uh, there have been backups in freight. They're less tankers trying to get into Los Angeles now than there were, but there are more tankers trying to get into Shanghai. So that aspect is not over. And um, then labor, uh, there's been a fundamental change in labor. And we had 3 million people retire early and several million people drop out of the labor force. So while the Fed two years ago was thrilled with 3.5% unemployment, that would raise the wages of the lesser paid people in our society and help the Gini coefficient, the ratio of wealthy to less wealthy. And now 3.5% is causing a real challenge. But that rate is down more because of a lack of workers who have dropped out of the labor force than an excess of um, demand. It's a, it becomes an excess of demand because there aren't enough workers to fill the demand, which is a different way of getting there. But it seems like quite a bit of the inflation pressure, both before the war and now exacerbated by the war, is around supply constraints. And if that's the case, how does the Fed meaningfully address inflation without just hammering growth? An excellent question. And the inflation, the biggest cause of inflation was fiscal stimulus. Um, There was a Trump stimulus, there was a Biden stimulus. You can make arguments about which one is needed and how big, but they're both significant and they put a lot of money into the system. Um, but a year ago, they ended. And if you haven't put anything more into the pot in a year, you begin to not spend as much. Um, but the Fed kept stimulating. So they accommodated that money supply. So the question of can the Fed um, make chips and cause auto price production to go up? not by itself. Can they stop a war? No. Do they grow wheat? I don't think so. So there are a lot of parts of the inflation which are not the main cause of inflation, but an aggravation of the already strong price pressures and reduced labor force that the Fed really cannot handle. And if we look forward, the the concern I have with what is the chance of a policy mistake. If, if inflation next week, as we were saying this, is at you know, 8.4%, that's 6.4% above its target. If it drops to five, it'll be about halfway back to its target. Why will it drop to five? It'll drop to five because used car prices are coming down, because new cars are being made, because lumber is being produced, um, hopefully because the war is over. But, you know, Labor will still be a force, but if you're producing enough tightness to bring inflation down 
and three and a half percent, and you continue to tighten from that point forward, there's an excellent shot of overshooting on the downside. And we're really getting as much, we think the concern in the economy may shift from you know, right now one-sided inflation concerns to a two-sided concern of growth and inflation, and maybe back to a one-sided concern on growth. Real final sales, which is the measuring the economy of how much people are buying. Um, the first half of 2021 was growing at 12%. The last six months of 2021 were growing at 1%. Now, inventories were being expanded, so the GDP numbers did not show that much weakness. But right as we speak, the Atlanta Fed GDP now, which is a measure of what they see GDP in the first quarter, is just under 1%. So if that's all final demand or inventories, three quarters in a row of 1% is a pretty big deceleration. It doesn't solve inflation because the sources are not just you know, too much demand. It's not enough supply. And you can't fix that with Fed policy necessarily. But you can't ignore it either. So the Fed's in a tough spot. They have to do a fine balancing act and um, the history of the Fed does, does not indicate that they're um, circus performers. Well, David, you mentioned that there's the potential for the Fed to make a policy mistake. Um, and there's so much uncertainty right now. I mean, geopolitics, commodities, global trade patterns, supply chains. Um, how, how do you think the Fed's going to be able to balance their dual mandate? Um, and especially if there is this era of potential stagflation. Well, the dual mandate of um, having you know, low inflation, approximately 2% plus or minus is their new goal, and full employment. Um, and then there's actually been, a, I would call, a slowly developing triple mandate, which involves ESG and the energy transformation, which the Fed seems to be commenting on as an issue they're interested in supporting. It's not part of the official mandate, but it's sort of in the background. Uh, you know, energy transition is going to be expensive and was going to be expensive by itself. The long term, you get almost free energy. It's a really good thing. But in the short term, you got to solve two sets of problems at the same time. So the Fed, as I mentioned earlier, the three and a half percent unemployment two years ago, Powell was thrilled with that because of how it's going to help, you know, minimum wage workers earn more. Now that those workers are earning more, there's a great concern at 3.5% that they're going to earn too much more. So the history of the Fed and average wages is that they don't like wages to go up. <laughs> They've shown a history of uh, cutting things off just as the party gets going. And um, you know, one of the things that you, know, you could make a counter argument that Maybe the Fed should let wages go up more and our profit margins squeeze a little bit. And that's advocating that as a policy. But you know, if you want to get the Gini coefficient to uh, regroup, you would need to have lower wage people earn more and higher wage people earn less. Um, that's a, not my political judgment necessarily, but it is certainly what they have espoused. Challenging. Let's let's stay on this topic of the potential for policy mistakes. Um, 
How much do you think the Fed is going to be concerned by financial instability? I mean, do you think the Fed can really stomach an equity market sell off as a result of their um, policy moves? Or do you think they'll back off from normalizing policy if they see that kind of route? They're going to have a very tough time making that decision, I think. Right now, they don't believe there's a trade-off. Um, and as I said, they, they believe that they can um, shrink the balance sheet um, without consequence. I, I would say right now, the market has already tightened rates in advance of the Fed. So whether it's the futures market already saying Fed, Fed funds at the end of the year will be two and a half, next year three and a quarter, but the treasury curve has already done the work where if the Fed does what they're talking about, the, the yield curve doesn't necessarily have to do anything more than it's already done. I'm not saying it will do nothing else, but it doesn't have to given today's prediction. Um, but if the um, Fed believes that quantitative tightening makes no difference and they find that the you know, stock market's down 30%, um, they may begin to rethink. We almost touched 20% earlier in the year before the war. There wasn't much concern about that. So I, I can't say exactly where they will become concerned. Um, it depends on where inflation is and how they balance things. But if the stock market's down 30 or 40%, I think there'll be a big impact on, on growth and inflation should start coming down unless the war is ravaging things or is expanding. So it's a, it's a really challenging environment. We have multifaceted issues coming from all directions having an impact. Sort of like the rogue wave, but instead of two waves coming together, it's like six. This is obviously a very challenging environment for the Fed in the U.S., but many other central banks are dealing with their own flavor of potentially some stagflationary pressures. How unique is the situation in the U.S.? I think it's fairly unique because we, uh, our second round of stimulus was really much bigger, and we stepped on the gas uh, really hard. Um, if you take a contrast with a lot of emerging markets, uh, because they haven't had the sort of the, the freedom to be as aggressive with fiscal stimulus. The market's never been kind to that. They started raising rates much earlier and we're, we're well ahead of the Fed. So, so far at least, we have not had sort of the taper tantrum kind of reaction we had in 2013 with Fed tightening. So I think a lot of countries are in different situations. Inflation in Europe is strong. Um, but it's uh, they're much closer to the supply front, the energy shortages, and other things. So that's uh, possibly you know, more supply driven. Well, at this point, markets and the Fed are suggesting that we could see as much as 200 basis points of additional tightening um, this year, uh, and that every FOMC meeting is live for a decision. Um, there's a lot that we've talked about that the Fed has to consider in making its decisions. What do you think are going to be, just to sum it all up, what do you think are going to be the primary factors that the Fed needs to consider, that they will consider as they make those decisions this year? They're going to be looking at uh, inflation. Uh, trailing inflation will not fall off too fast. I'm hoping they're looking at the month-to-month inflation changes, which you know may be coming down to a more palatable rate know, by the summer, but the year-over-year changes will certainly not be down because of what had happened before. And um, I hope the Fed can separate those things that they have control over and those things that they don't. I hope the Fed um, registers that uh, dramatic fiscal tightening 
uh, needs to be balanced with a view of how what the leads and lags are. I guess in summary, we're doing an unprecedented thing. We've cut fiscal stimulus um, by QE ending in early March. We raised rates in the middle of March. And now we're considering in May, raising rates 50 basis points and starting quantitative tightening. I mean, you read your history books or your you know, monetary history books, monetary policy works with long and variable lags. So the Fed approaching all three of those things at once, it's just gonna be a challenge to understand what the effects are when they're doing them all at the same time, which has never happened before. And they're doing it within the time frame, which is shorter than the normal time frame for seeing the impact of monetary policy. So uh, my heart is with Mr. Powell and that they handle this well and can uh, you know, thread the needle, get inflation coming down, but not crush the economy. It'll be an exciting year. Uh, thank you so much, David Hoffman uh, from Brandywine Global as part of our series of podcasts around the world.